If you would, take your Bibles, please, and open them to the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth in the Old Testament. Last Sunday, we looked at Matthew's account of the genealogy of Jesus, including the four women that are mentioned. And I thought that beginning today, I'll be here next Sunday, I'll be gone for several Sundays, but when I come back to complete it, we would look at the story of one of those women, and that is Ruth. By the way, I would be remiss if I did not remind you that we have two women presently in our congregation who are named Ruth. There are, in fact, two books in the Old Testament that are named after women, the book of Ruth and the book of Esther. And both tell the story of a woman who overcomes. One overcomes personal and family tragedy, The other one overcomes a national crisis. Interestingly enough, Ruth is a Gentile who marries into a Jewish refugee family. Esther, on the other hand, is a Jewish exile, an orphan, living in exile in the Medo-Persian Empire, who marries into Gentile royalty. But much more than that, these two books are the stories of God's working in history in ways we would not expect. God's guiding hand is always present and powerful on behalf of his people, even when painful loss, like the loss of a husband, or unjust schemes, like that of Haman in the book of Esther, seem to have the upper hand. Both women faced what seemed to be out-of-control crises, one again on an individual level, the other on a national level, and yet God was clearly at work. In my opinion, I think most people would agree that this is the case when it comes to the story of Esther. Maybe less so with the story of Ruth, but I hope that we will see that that is that God is that much at work in Ruth's story as he is in Esther's. I found this interesting that one commentator wrote, Ruth is an absolutely delightful little book. Mention its name and Bible readers gently smile, warmly praise its beauty and quietly tell what it means to them personally. The reasons for such tender reverence come readily to mind. The book is, after all, profoundly human, a story with down-to-earth features with which one can easily identify. Indeed, readers immediately see themselves in the story. Interesting, but I think there's more to it than that. As with other portions of scripture, however, we might enjoy it, the story of Ruth, but we might well ask, why is it included in scripture? That we might expect something a bit more serious, something more theological. It's a short book, four chapters, 85 verses. Um, Is it just a delightful little story to sort of tell children in Sunday school? I hope that as we go through this book, we will learn the answer to the question, why is it in Scripture and what does it have to teach us? Today, I want to look at the first five verses because they set the stage. Or, to use painting as an analogy, they paint the background. And the background that is painted is darkness. It would be either black or certainly dark gray. I think we will miss, if we miss these first five verses and what they have to tell us and blithely go on to the part where Ruth says, your people are my people, your God is my God, I will go with you wherever you are, we will really miss what is happening in this story. If you would, look at the first five verses as I read them. 
In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name Naomi, and the names of their two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were, they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. So let's look at the setting, because I think this is really critical. We know what happens after Ruth. We know that she... Uh, Mary's Boaz, they have Obed, and then Jesse, and then David, and then down the line we have Jesus. We know that. But imagine that you don't know that, and that you're reading the Bible through for the first time. The time frame given is in the days when the judges ruled. In terms of chronology, this is pretty vague, because as best we can tell, the time of the judges spanned almost four centuries, about 400 years. And to give you something to compare it against, the United States, or what we call the United States, has been around barely 400 years. I mean, when the Pilgrims came in 1620, Jamestown earlier in 1600, um, we haven't been around that long. So the time of the judges, if someone said, well, sometime during the time of the Americas, well, that's, that's pretty vague. A judge described, by the way, a type of leader that God raised up for Israel after Joshua. The judges were not kings. They were not elected officials. They, in fact, were appointed by God. We might even say that they were spirit-appointed leaders, usually military leaders, who took action when Israel was in trouble and they needed to be delivered. By the way, they did have day-to-day duties. They did make decisions in judicial cases that sort of were beyond the local level. When someone couldn't make a decision, they would go to a judge and say, here, you decide this case. But this is what God had established for Israel. He brought them into their land. He gave them land. And he gave them law. He said, this is how you are supposed to live. One place was going to be where they were to worship. That's where the tabernacle would be. But there was no centralized government. Each town would make its own decisions. And then within the tribe, decisions would be made. There was no king. Except for God. God was to be the head of the nation. Everything else was decentralized. They were to obey God's law, and he promised in return to protect them and to provide for them. But what we find is that Israel fails to do this time and time again. They fall into idolatry and sin, and then they are oppressed. God gives them into the hands of their enemies. They call out to God for help. We've messed up. We've sinned. We've worshipped false gods. And then God sends a judge to deliver them. And then we find that Israel falls into the same pattern. Again, this cycle of, uh, of living a good life because God provides for them, going after idols, God delivers them into the hand of their enemies, they are oppressed, and usually for, for a period of time, for years. They call out to God, God delivers them, and so they prosper. But then they fall into idolatry again, and we find this cycle repeated over and over again. So when we read that this was the time of the judges, I think this is the first hint 
that the paint, the color we're going to use for the background of this painting is in fact darkness. It's black. It's certainly dark gray. And we should remember the last verse of the book of Judges. If you're in Ruth, if you just turn the page over to the last part of Judges. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. Simply put, it was a time of lawlessness. So it is the time of the Judges. Secondly, we find that there was a famine in the land. We've seen this in the series on creation and other series as well, that we tend to attribute such things to natural causes, that there's a famine, there's a drought because of changing weather patterns or things like that. Um, this is not how we see it in Scripture. We, there are, in fact, natural causes, but God, I believe, is the one who uses these to correct his people. We should not assume a disconnect between our morality, what we do that is right and wrong, and what we would call nature. Unless, you know, people say, well, if you pollute the environment, then the environment will, in fact, react because it is degraded. Um, but it's much more than that. If we read scripture carefully, particularly the Old Testament prophets, we find time and time again that the prophets remind Israel that the wasting away of creation or the flourishing of creation is tied directly to the justice that is found among God's people. If what we find among God's people is injustice, we shouldn't be surprised that there's a famine. If there is justice among God's people, we should not be surprised that creation is flourishing. God's justice is the way in which the world becomes God's creation and sustains life. So when we read that there was a famine in the land, the, the writer does not tell us, I think he wants us to know, or she wants us to know, it's possible that a woman wrote this, uh, something was wrong in Israel. They were not obeying God as they should, and therefore there was a famine. So this is more darkness, if you wish, to the picture. God's creation is not a closed system. It does not operate apart from God's people and what they do. And so when we find in the promised land there is a famine, something is wrong with this picture. Something has gone desperately wrong, and it is probably that God's people have fallen into idolatry again. So that's the second thing that tells us that there's darkness. The third is that there is a man from Bethlehem in Judah. And here we are given the geography of the beginning of the story. Um, by the way, this is also where the story ends. It begins in Bethlehem. They go to Moab, come back, and the story ends in Bethlehem. But the reader doesn't know that at this point. And the reader, if they begin at the beginning, do not know about Jesus being born in Bethlehem. They have not heard the carol, O Little Town of Bethlehem. If they've been reading the Old Testament through in the order that it is established in canon, um, they will remember that the last two major stories in the book of Ju uh, Judges happened or began in Bethlehem. The first one in Judges chapter 17 is the story of a young Levite in Bethlehem. And he's tired of living in Bethlehem. He starts wandering around looking for a place to live. 
At the same time, somebody has stolen something from his mother and then returns it, and then she makes an idol out of it, and they need a priest to sort of help guide people in worshiping this idol. And a young Levite from Bethlehem comes strolling by. They basically grab him and say, you're going to be our father. You're going to tell us how to worship this idol. And a whole new system of idolatry emerges in Israel. This story, I think, we find less distressing than the second one. I think that's because we're less troubled by idolatry than we should be. A brief summary of the second story. A man from Ephraim goes down to Bethlehem to get his concubine back. Apparently she's run off. She's gone back home to her dad. And so he goes down to try to woo her back. And she agrees to go home with him. But her dad won't let this guy go. He keeps saying, hey, hang out. Let's eat some more. And his return home is delayed and delayed and delayed. And finally, at one point, he decides to leave, even though it's not early in the morning. And so he's not going to make it home that night. He and his servant, along with the concubine, reach a place called Gibeah, which is in the tribe or was in the tribe of Benjamin. And they do what most travelers did in the ancient world. They're going to stay in the town square. It's enclosed and it's a place for them to sleep. Well, there's an old man from Ephraim who happens to be living in Gibeah. He's like, you guys are not safe. You need to come in the house with me. And so he brings the servant, the Levite and the concubine into the house. And then the house is surrounded by the men of that town. And they say to this man, we want this visitor. We want this man. And basically what they want to do is to rape this man. And the old man says, please, please don't do that. And instead gives him the concubine. And if you know the story, the men of the town of Gibeah raped this woman to death. The, the Levite gets up in the morning, he finds her body, he puts her on a donkey, goes home, and then he cuts her up into pieces and sends it to the, tri- to the tribes and says, listen, what, what do you think should be done about this? As a result, Israel turns against Benjamin and Benjamin is almost wiped out. Now, if you've been reading the book of Judges and now you come to Ruth and you find out that there's a man in Bethlehem, you're like, Oh my word, not Bethlehem again, because everything you've read up to this point about Bethlehem has not been good. We know it's the town of David. Okay? That's after, afterwards. We know that's where Jesus was born. Back then, people didn't know that yet. And so Bethlehem does not have a good reputation if you're reading through Scripture. And so again, if we're painting a big picture of the story of Ruth boy, we're just going to use all dark colors for the background because it's a time of the judges, there's a famine, and there's a man from Bethlehem. None of this is good. None of this is good. So we might be relieved to read what follows, that together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. It's like, boy, get out of town, run. I mean, get away from Bethlehem. Moab is almost a mirror image of Judah, with the Dead Sea in between. On the west side is Judah, and on the east side is Moab. It's an ancient kingdom, with not good relations with the Israelites. When Israel was passing through uh, to get to the Promised Land, the king of Moab, Balak, hired Balaam, you may remember, we talked about him several weeks ago, to curse Israel, and instead... Uh, Balaam blesses, blesses them three times. But Balaam also gets 
the people of Moab to seduce, to tempt the Israelites to worship their God, Baal. And so it's no wonder, and I've read this, uh, I read this last week from Deuteronomy 23, no Ammonite or Moabite or any of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord even down to the tenth generation. These are the enemies of God's people. In the day of the judges, Moab was the enemy of Israel. Eglon, the king of Moab, oppressed Israel for a period of time. In the days of Saul, Moab was their enemy. And it goes on. But that's, that's sort of beyond our story. Right now, we are at a point in time in which Moab is the enemy of Israel. And yet, Elimelech takes his wife and two sons, leaves Bethlehem, and goes probably around the Dead Sea through Jericho into Moab, because at least they have food there to eat. But there's much more than political danger in Moab, that they are the sworn enemies of Israel. There is theological danger. Like people today, the Moabites, and the Canaanites for that matter, were absorbed with finding the secret to prosperity. What would make for a strong economy? What would guarantee full employment? What would provide an adequate living wage and maintain living standards? These are questions I think we ask today. But as the Moabite economy was agrarian, that is that they were farmers, their pursuit of prosperity focused on fertility. They needed fertility for their crops, for their livestock, for their families. They needed children to grow up to be workers or to be their heirs. And so fertility was the focus of their thinking. The key to their religion was, in fact, fertility. And so they had two gods. One was male, that is Baal, or Baal. As a Canaanite belief, he owned the land. It was his. And he was the one who controlled its fertility. Ashtart, or Ashtaroth is the plural, was the female deity. And you have a regular cycle, if you wish. You have the seasons of the year. You have rains in certain times. You have the fertility of the ground. All of this, they believe, came from the gods. This was due, they believed, to the sexual relations between Baal and Ashtart. So in other words, as Baal had sexual relations with Ashtart, everything became fertile. Now the thinking in Canaanite religion was that Baal and Ashtart might forget that they need to do that. They might forget that they need to have sexual relations. So what the Canaanites did is on the highest place they could find, they would build a shrine which would have men and women to serve, and I don't know if we would call them priests or priestesses, but they worked in these shrines, and what people did was they went, if you wish, to church, to the shrine, and there they had sexual relations with the men or the women to say to Baal and Ashtar, this is what you're supposed to be doing. If you don't do this, we won't have crops. The animals won't reproduce. Have you forgot? Let us remind you, this is what you're supposed to be doing. Now, we need to understand that this is completely contrary to what God has revealed. Fertility and prosperity among God's people were part of what he had promised them, and it was associated with the covenant he had made with them. He had given them laws. This is the way you're supposed to live. And these are not cruel laws. These are not arbitrary laws. 
if you are human, made in the image of God, this is the way you should live. And God should know because he made you. And if you do these things, because there is a connection between God's people as creatures and creation, there in fact will be fertility. There will be prosperity. We don't need to remind God what to do. God, in fact, is the one who has created us and sustains us. But in Bethlehem, there is a famine. There is a famine. And so Elimelech takes his family to Moab. And the picture is still dark and bleak. It's the time of the judges. It's a time of famine. They're leaving Bethlehem and they're going and living among pagans. There's one more question before moving on. Did Elimelech do the right thing in leaving Bethlehem? Was he right in going to Moab? In the face of famine, should not repentance have been the proper response? Was it okay for him to go and live among God's enemies? Was it okay to go and live among pagans? After all, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we see all three of the patriarchs at different times, when they are faced with famine, they leave. Abraham and Jacob go to Egypt. Uh, Isaac goes and lives in an area we now know as Philistia, or we know later on as Philistia. Notwithstanding the example of the patriarchs, I tend to think that Elimelech did not do the right thing. We're not told that, and I want to make that clear. That's my opinion. We're not told that he did the wrong thing. What we find, though, in these verses is darkness upon darkness. The picture gets bleaker and bleaker. The characters are mentioned. There are four of them uh, in the family, and then two women marry in. We have Elimelech, Naomi, and then the two sons, Malon and Kilion. I must confess that, generally speaking, I don't read too much into people's names, what they mean. And maybe that's just because I'm more modern and American than anything else. Um, But we saw last Sunday that Jesus is given two names. Jesus, which means God saves, and Emmanuel, God with us. In the book of Ruth, Naomi makes much of her name. Um, If you look, let me see, in verse 20 of chapter 1. Naomi comes back to Bethlehem and says, look, it's, it's Naomi, it's Naomi. And she goes, verse 20, don't call me Naomi. She told them, call me Ma, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. Well, Naomi means pleasant, delightful. And she's like, don't call me that. Call me Mara, which means bitter. So she, in fact, makes much of what her name means. Um, it's also interesting that there's a major character in this story whose name is not given. He'll show up in chapter 3 and 4, the man who would not uh, redeem the property. He is unnamed. And so the people who are named, I think we should take into account what their names mean. So Elimelech means, my God is king. Some people have wondered if there isn't a certain irony here in that we find a man with such a name that rather than trusting in God, who apparently is supposed to be his king, supposedly is his king, does not trust him to provide for him to protect him and his family. Instead, he goes to a pagan country. Um, By the way, just because God is one's king doesn't mean your life will be trouble-free, that there won't be difficulties. 
But there does to be, seem to be something wrong with a man who has such a powerful name, a strong name, God is my king, uh, running to Moab. Naomi means pleasant, lovely, delightful. The two sons do not have Jewish names. They have Canaanite names, which I think points to something not being quite right. Malon is linked to the root word meaning to be sick. Some have said that Malon means weakling. It certainly doesn't seem a name you'd want to give your son. And Kilion signifies something like falling down or pining. Uh, neither one of these are very pleasant or powerful names. Not too encouraging. And then we are told, interestingly enough, that they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. So the first verse is repeated again in a different way in the second verse. What are Ephrathites? Well, they are people from Ephrathah, which may not help us. But if we look back, we find that it is a geographical reference point that Jacob, when he came back, from his father-in-law's to the promised land, to Canaan, wasn't the promised land yet, uh, his wife, his, the wife he loved, Rachel, we are told that they were some distance from Ephrathah when she died. So it is a reference point. I think more than that, Ephrathah means something that is important, and it means fruitful. So if you can imagine, you have a man whose name my God is king, or God is my king, with a wife named Pleasant or Delightful, who are from a place called Fruitful, leave because of a famine and go and live among pagans. I think there's irony upon irony here. So what happens in Moab? We find this in verses 3, 4, and 5. In verse number 3, Elimelech dies. But she's left with her two sons. She's not left alone. They marry two Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. And then after that, they lived there about ten years. The time before that, we are not told. We are not told how long they lived, uh, how long they were there before Elimelech died, and then how long before they married. But after they married, they lived there for about ten years. And then in verse 5, the two sons died, and she is left with two son, without two sons and her husband. The death of her husband no doubt brought sorrow, but at least she had her two sons who would carry on his name. And the marriages of her two sons, to, even though they are Moabite women, must have brought her some joy, because now they will have sons and they will carry on the family name. But then their two sons die. And I have in my notes that these are untimely deaths, that is, they die before their mother dies. The child should not die before his or her parents. But more than that, the family line of Elimelech ends. They had two sons, but their sons don't have sons. That's the end of this family line. If you're doing a family tree, it ends somewhere in this space. There's nothing else coming from there. And among the Israelites, there could be no greater tragedy. And so what we find at the end of verse number five is three widows in Moab. Naomi without her husband and her two sons. The family line has ended and we have two Moabite widows with her. And again, in these first five verses, what we find is darkness upon darkness upon darkness. And if we don't see this, then I think we will fail to see the light that breaks through in the rest of this book. I'm reminded of something that Francis Schaeffer used to say, that uh, 
he lived in Switzerland and the Swiss were very on time about trains. He said, if he got on a train with someone who asked him, explain to me what you believe. And they, they knew they had an hour. He said he would spend 45 minutes on the bad news and then 15 minutes on the good news of the gospel. I think in many ways, we need to do that with the book of Ruth. We need to see these first five verses to see the darkness so that when the light of God's providence breaks through, it means something. Rather than being some schmaltzy, sentimental story about uh, a faithful daughter-in-law who takes care of her mother-in-law. In verse number five, uh, verse number six, I'm sorry, the light begins to break through. If you look at verse number six, when she, that is Naomi, heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. For me, this is the verse in the book of Ruth. This is... This is the most powerful verse in this entire book. And I think of it more in the King James than I do the NIV, and the ESV follows the King James here. She had heard in Moab how that the Lord had visited his people. God had visited his people. It's an expression we find other places in Scripture. When God sent Moses to Egypt to tell the Israelites of their coming deliverance, this is in Exodus 4.31, And the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. We also hear it in the first two lines of the Song of Zechariah. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Now let's understand, there is a real sense in which God is always with his people. But there is also a sense in which he visits them in a special way. Not always, if you wish, in a pleasant way. Not always with grace. Sometimes with judgment. Zechariah in his song, though, is very clear. He wants to make it clear the visitation he has in mind is a visitation of grace. He has visited and redeemed his people. Does this mean that Zechariah understood what was going to happen with John and then Jesus and all that? Not at all. And in fact, what we find in Scripture is that the Israelites time and time again did not understand what God was going to do, but they did understand that God had visited them. And because he had visited them, good things were going to happen. I find that the Old Testament saints had a virtue that as New Testament saints, we oftentimes tend to uh, lack. And that is, they didn't need to know everything. They did not need to know everything. I mean, compare what we know about the coming of Jesus into the world and his life and his death, his resurrection. Compare what we know to what they know. It's, it's night and day. I mean, we know so much. And yet, I think sometimes we want to know more. And what I find in Old Testament saints is that there's this contentment with knowing that God was going to take care of them, that the Lord had visited his people. They didn't expect to know everything. They didn't need to know everything in order for them to give thanks to God. They worshipped him and they thanked him for what he had done. This is true of Naomi as well. She had heard that the Lord had visited his people and she packs up 
along with her daughters-in-law and decides to return home. And this is the first indication. This is the breaking of light into this dark background of the story that we have thus far. It's the first indication that we have of where Naomi's heart is at. Had she bought into the Moabite system of worship, Baal and Ashtart? Had she become a pagan? After all, she'd lived in Moab for at least ten years, probably much longer than that. Well, the answer is very clear. No, she had not. Her trust was still in the God of Israel. And when she heard that God had visited his people, the Lord, the one who provides, the one who comes to meet his people in time of need, the God who sets his people free. When Naomi heard this news, that's all she needs to hear. She's ready to go home. Because Moab isn't her home. Bethlehem is. And for all the horrible things that have happened in Bethlehem, that is her home. And God has visited his people. It is worth noting that they are still his people. That's one of the amazing things we find in the Old Testament for all their rebellion, for all their falling into idolatry that we find in the book of Judges. Time and time and time again, this cycle of falling into sin, into idolatry, and God delivering them, and then they fall back in again. They are still his people. And Naomi, though she has lived among pagans for more than a decade, he is still her God, and she wants to go home. It is worth noting, and I'll close here, we'll pick it up the Lord willing next week. When Naomi hears the news, she does not simply say, that's wonderful, that's great, praise God. She does something about it. And so in verse 6, she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. Verse 7, so she set out from the place where she was with her daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. It wasn't enough to hear the news. She responded. And out of this bleak first five verses of the book of Ruth, light begins to break through. It's just the beginning, by the way, of the light breaking through. That's what the rest of the book of Ruth is about. And the Lord willing, next week we will look at the return to Bethlehem. Let's pray together. Father, the truth is, much of the time, if not most of the time, we don't know what you are doing. We're not clear about where this is all going. And we may, might imagine that the colors being used in our life at a particular point are, are dark, gloomy. We really don't have a sense how this can turn out for something good how there can be any light in the midst of all this. I thank you for these first five verses of Ruth that paint such a bleak and dark picture because it is in the midst of the darkness that your grace breaks through. And that we learn, as we heard today, that nothing can separate us from your love. That Naomi loses her husband and her sons, but she has not lost you. But at this point in the story, it's all about loss. It's darkness, it's heaviness, it's sorrow. 
And yet, as we will see, your grace breaks through, the light breaks through. And you are in control of history. And this Moabite widow will become a part of the Messianic line. She will become one of the ancestors of Jesus. There's no way Naomi could have ever foreseen this or imagined this, particularly in the midst of her loss. In the same way, I think, in our lives, we just wonder sometimes what you are doing, where this is all going. May we, like Naomi and the Old Testament saints, trust you. May we not think that we need to know that if you would just explain it to us, we would we'd be okay. But in fact, that we should trust you and thank you for your work in our lives. We do not know what the coming year will bring. In fact, it brings nothing. You are the one who brings all things into our lives. We don't know what plans you have for us, but may we trust you that you love us, you provide for us, you care for us, and you are doing what is best. I thank you that on this first Sunday of a new year we could be called together, that you called us together to worship you. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.